Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Ed Buckley, who is the CEO of PureFit, a digital platform that makes it easy for employers, insurance carriers, and brokers to offer fitness classes to their clients and employees. In this episode with Ed Buckley, we go through how he started the business back in 2011, how he's grown up to this point, including going through the whole fundraising game and how it's actually essentially the same thing at each level, even though he's raised millions of dollars in funding, and how he's impacting the world through PeerFit, especially now during the time of COVID-19, the time of recording, when they switched their business from like 5% on the digital uh, certain offering they had to basically going 100% on that side, how he's adjusting in this time of crisis. We go through that as well. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Lastly, the newsletter, The Weekly Grind, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Without further ado, here is Ed Buckley, the CEO of PeerFit. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and it, with with wellness company, there's there's so much to unpack with, with PeerFit. But where I want to go back to first is like, where did this interest in kind of health wellness start for you? You know, uh, I think it was a bit ingrained from my family. My mom and dad are both very active uh, in completely different ways. My mom is probably a little bit more like me with enjoying cardio and strength. My dad just always enjoyed going to the gym and being a gym rat. But you, when we were always just very active, and for as long as I can remember, not only did I enjoy being active, but I loved forcing people around <laughs> me to be active. Maybe that's why I became a you know group fit instructor uh, during college. But yeah, I just I, I've loved I love the results of being around people, and you know there's just something that comes out of that. And so between my academic career and what I was doing when I wasn't, you know, in college just really led all of my interests and passions together. Yeah. And and with that too, so you said group fitness instructor, then you end up getting uh, obviously a lot, a lot of different degrees as well. I mean, how does that transition then? Because I, I used to be a personal trainer, uh, fitness club, and then also uh, did my own in-home personal training company and everything. But for you, how did that transition from your group fitness instructor to, wait, I want to make a company in this. That's a whole different thing. Yeah, I, I, they, they kind of fed each other. So I was a group fit instructor during grad school. And my grad work really focused on health policy. Man, and I've never been so appreciative for epidemiology classes as I am right now during <laughs> COVID-19. Um, yeah. But, you know, during my public health grad work and then during my doctoral work on health behavior and, and digital health, you know, I was a fitness instructor. And you just started to see, you know, what you'd learn in class. And then when you talk to people in a class or, uh, you know, when you were teaching, you'd be able to take that back to, you know, the academic classroom. And then just really, it became a flywheel. One started pushing the other, and I was able to really merge the two sides of academic and practical, um, you know, fitness and wellness together. And that's really what created PeerFit. Yeah. And for people who don't understand, obviously I'll have an intro to talk about it, but what is PeerFit and what's the elevator pitch on that? Well, you know, what we do at PeerFit is pretty simple. We try to make it incredibly easy for employers and health plans 
for to pay for their members to have fitness experiences. In the beginning, that meant gyms and studios, but obviously in the world of digital, you know, isolation here, we're continuing to pay for people's experiences for streaming classes, for small group training and coaching that's going on in at-home fit kits. So the business model and value prop are really still the same. We're able to still do it. We're just paying for different curated experiences. So it's great to see our business model evolve, but at the same time, not have to completely change in the in this new world. Yeah, and that's, that's such a benefit for sure. And thinking about that too, I mean, ideas always, companies always pivot. I think they're saying something like, you know, 90% of the time, like they pivot, they change, they adjust. Well, I'm curious as to what was that initial vision for PureFit when you just got started? Well, in the beginning, you'll know this because you're a personal trainer. I <laughs> always had such a hard time uh, getting my workouts down on paper. What did I want to coach? And then being able to use it during class, people wanted to know if they could have it, you know, before class or after class to kind of remember what it was. And just that information sharing of writing workouts, saving, storing workouts, reusing them, transferring them to other people, and then people deciding what classes to go on. Imagine if they could see different workouts or past workouts. Uh, you know, I'll just use an example. A gym that I worked out had, had a class called Booty School. And it was an all lower body class. But for the average person, how the heck are they going to really know what that class is like? Is it high <laughs> intensity? Is it right for them? Is it a level one or a level four? You know. And so the idea was free flowing information from the person writing the workout, storing them and sharing them so that people could make better decisions on what classes and digitizing the group fitness calendar so that you could better sort, filter, invite, schedule and all of that. And, and as we got in there, the natural next step was rankings and ratings. And then ultimately we found out was it didn't matter if people knew who the best class and best instructor in a city were if they didn't have flexible access. If their funds from their worksite wellness program or from their health plan, you know, some people allocate funds, you know, $20 a month that you can go to a gym. If that wasn't flexible and couldn't be steered to different places, then it didn't really matter who was the best instructor or what was the best class because they were generally locked into one place. And where they yeah. were locked in was different than where their coworker or their friend was locked into. And ultimately what we figured out was payment flexibility was significantly more important in terms of order of operations than than the information. Yeah. And Ed, with that, I mean, how did you figure these kind of early insights out? Because doing that customer research is so important to make sure you're building something that actually solves a need. Like, how are you figuring that out in the early days? Well, we built it and we put it out there. We were doing, <laughs> we were doing customer interviews. And, and you know, once again, I, I remember sitting in a customer interview and someone was just kind of, the, we told them to think out loud as they went through the website. And I remember uh, the young lady saying, well, I don't really care who's the best instructor because I'm not a member there. Oh, I don't really care that so-and-so just recommended this class to me because I'm not a member there. And I just kept hearing that. And I was like, oh. That's the friction point here, not information. Yeah. And with that too, with the initial kind of thing you built, like what was that MVP, that initial uh, thing you built? And like, how did you get that done? Did you have the technical skills? Did you know someone? Like, I'm curious about that too. Sure. Uh, I can't even imagine if we saw the early versions today. I mean, our eyes <laughs> would be bleeding. Um, but I mean, you know, in the beginning, it was a workout builder. 
that was the MVP version was a workout builder, you know, and we just used very crude um, tools to, to build those MVP versions, you, you know, just enough to be dangerous. And then as we were able to raise a small, tiny amount of money from our friends and family, we were able to hire some overseas programmers. And then we were able to hire some developers. And, you know, now we have teams and teams of, of developers and engineers. That's awesome. And then, you know, going from that early stage, like that early initial idea, you actually then talk to customers, get the feedback, like, wait a minute, we need to change this, this whole thing entirely. Like, take me through that process then of you get that you you had this kind of almost aha moment from that, like, okay, that's the friction point. Like, then what was next in the company? What was the next evolution of, of, of PeerFit? Yeah, at that point, what we knew was we needed to unbundle uh, fitness packaging. That was the next yeah. point. And so we did a really crude offline version so that we didn't have to go spend dev resources on something that we still weren't sure, you know, what was the right answer. And so what we did was we went to a lot of just kind of hustle work, right? We went to a lot of gyms across town and said, all right, let us let us try to unbundle your classes. Let us package a couple of your group training sessions or small group training or private, you know, personal training sessions and bundle them together in a pack. And we sold these class packs together. And once again, what we learned was people equally loved them and hated them. People loved them because <laughs> it gave them what they were looking for. But in their you know, end of use survey, people were saying, but it's worthless to me unless it's ongoing. So it can't replace my gym membership because it's a temporary pack. I basically bought access for one month to this amazing program that I want every single month. And that was probably the real aha moment was we built something valuable, right? Which is the last one was not valuable. We learned why. <laughs> so then we built something valuable, but it didn't have the long-term value that would actually make them switch products from what they were currently using to what they had. The way I think about it is if you have a car and you pay for a car and then for one month, you gave somebody some flying machine, but then you took it away at the end of the month and said, well, you know, are you going to get rid of your car? You'd say, well, no, I'm only allowed to have this one month a year. Why would <laughs> I get rid of my car? So really, that was when we knew, all right, you spend all this time, energy, and effort selling people just to have a one-month sale. What if this yeah. could be a recurring subscription-like service? And then once again, then the next moment was, let's not worry about consumers as our first means. Let's use distribution by gathering their wellness funds from their employer and health plans and making sure that can pay for this subscription like service. Yeah. And going about that and knowing that that's kind of the insight, I mean, how did you go about partnering with them to make sure you can make that happen? Actually, they're not easy to work with. I will tell <laughs> you, uh, I don't think a health plan is known for being overly risk taking and innovative or fast. I mean, by default, they are risk averse. They're an insurance company, right? Yeah. And to be protective of their security and compliance, they just can't try something out quickly. So it took years of working them from the top and the bottom, you know, going out to the field, getting our hands slapped a couple of times, you know, for maybe pushing the envelope a little bit too much. But that's what it took. Right? We, we had to play sides uh, off of each other. We had to make the headquarters people hear the field and we had to have the field talking to headquarters because they didn't naturally do that. It's just not how they, they operate. So really it was connecting the, you know, the salespeople and the account managers from, 
North Carolina and Florida talking to people back in, you know, the Northeast who never left their ivory tower. And, you know, that was, I would say the most difficult thing was making that connection and making it happen in a non-ego way. Because a lot of those people, if they were to hear information that didn't come to them naturally, they feel like they're being told what to do and they'll just stop the project for, I mean, literally ego. So, you know, luckily for us, our team was relentless. We hired some great people who had worked at health plans. They had a great, you know, kind of Rolodex of people to call on. And just we we, we took every little scrap of buy-in and and blew it up as much as we could. That's really, you know, it was really turning, you know, uh, spinning gold out of out of yarn is really what it was. (laughs) Yeah. And you mentioned like the we part of that. So like with the team itself, like what, what did the team consist of in, in, in those early days in the first couple few years? Mm, Well, before I was in Tampa, I was in Gainesville. That's where I was finishing my um, doctoral work. Okay. And we moved it to Tampa and I think we had like five employees, right? Is, is I think we were (laughs) basically not paying ourselves or just paying our living expenses and we were working on the side. And as soon as we made the pivot to employers and had a good product there, you know, it took probably about a year to go from five to 15 people. And I would say kind of evenly balanced of some front end, back end, you know, on the product side, sales, marketing, and then the real change were the employees that were 20 to 30. The the Those employees from 20 to 30 really marked the first time we went outside of my network of people I knew and had worked with and could trust and went out and got subject matter expertise. People that you know maybe were a degree or two of separation so that we still had good references for them, but they were heavy hitters. They had been in the industry a long time you know, that this wasn't my buddies from college who were enthusiastic. These were people that had real careers, high paying careers. And we were going to ask them to leave their job and come work for a startup. How did you convince them then? Because that is always something where that's the hardest part, like talent acquisition and building a solid team because that can derail a startup. I mean, what, what was some of the, what do you think convinced them to actually join you guys then? You know, I think more often than not, people approach that in the wrong way. They think, oh, I'm asking someone who makes a lot of money and has a stable career to come to this risky startup. How am I going to do that? Really, it's almost the other way around. Most of the time, we found people who were bored in their careers, were tired of bureaucracy, who needed something different. We had what they were looking for. They were looking for the anti-establishment company. And a lot of these people could afford a pay cut. They've done well in their career. A lot of the times these people could afford and say, hey, look, I'll do this for a year. And if it doesn't work, I can go right back into their workforce or go somewhere else. So, you know, it's almost easier to go really high on the talent pool than kind of medium. Because if you go after somebody who's maybe midway through their career, midway up the org chart, and you're trying to play it safe, they might not have a, as much jaded, uh, you know, <laughs> or the, the financial backing that people do at the end of their career. We've ended up finding it's a, it's a little bit easier for us to find people late in their career 
simply because they can kind of do whatever they want to do, right? And if they want to yeah. go do this for a year, great. They can afford to, to do that. So it's almost better to swing big than to swing small when you're going after that conversation. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that, actually. I'm just thinking someone popped in my head of a uh, uh, fi- financial a fintech company that was actually one of my former personal training clients. And he, I think, was in his like, like early 50s, just after 50, and kind of had gone through that same thing of like a steady, you know, consistent career, climb the ranks, whatever. And for him, a startup was like he was the most excited he's ever been, yes, <laughs> you know, starting exactly. his new company. <laughs> well, I mean, just thinking, and this is going to be a broad stereotype. Imagine going after somebody in their mid to late 30s statistically speaking, they still have kids, right? They still, they've probably got young to, um, you know, uh, teenage kids. They've got college ahead of them. Like to your point, if you go after somebody in their fifties, most likely if they had kids, they're probably graduated. They're probably at their highest earning. Like, so, you know, it just, it actually makes sense of they they see a few years left in their career and they're like, why wouldn't I want to do something fun? And be yeah. somewhere fun rather than spend my remaining years hating life. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And one thing too, with looking back at the company too, I, I like to break it up into kind of early years and later, especially if you've been around since you've been around a while. Like early in those first like few years, like what were the biggest challenges of, of everything with the business of mo- running the business or moving the company forward? Like what were some of the biggest challenges in those early years with PureFit? You know, I think a lot of the problems. And, and challenges you face at those time really aren't that different later on in your maturity as a company. They're just different magnitudes and the frequency might be different. But, you know, think about, I'll just use those early, those first couple clients. You're having to convince these clients to come out and work with you. You're having to convince, you know, well, I look at now, we still have to convince you know, clients to work with us, it's because we're going after new, bigger clients than we've ever had. If we wanted to stay yeah. in our pond and stay medium-sized clients or, you know, kind of, so so for us, we're, we're significantly larger than we were years ago, right? In orders of magnitudes, but right. it's still very similar problems of how do you go to someone and convince them to work with a startup from a client perspective? You know, they, their job is on the line. And if they say, hey, boss, I think we should use this software and it doesn't work or you don't really have the validation to prove that you're not going to, you know, ruin their career. That's tough just because you don't have the <laughs> you don't have the resources that they're looking for. It isn't a lack of intelligence. It isn't a, a lack of anything other than you physically don't have the track record to give them. And so that's when I, I always try to offer the advice of being creative. Don't just deliver what they're asking for. So if they want X as a metric of of track record, maybe you can break that up and show them in three different stages how you're able to replicate that track record, right? Maybe maybe you do pilots with other people. Maybe you do, you know, you can get creative. You have to get creative during that time. And every little win you get along the road, give people those updates. I mean, whether it was investors or clients when they said, hey, no, but if you can get to this milestone, come back and talk to me. Well, I didn't wait to get to that milestone. Every time we made a a pretty significant step towards that milestone, I went back and educated them. I made them participants on our journey and, and made sure that they got bought in and excited so they saw the trajectory and velocity in which we were approaching that milestone. So, you know, I think that's what you just have to figure out is how to uh, attack the castle from every different angle. 
Yeah. Oh, definitely. And you mentioned something there a little bit, uh, a little bit back that you know you're a much bigger company, obviously, than you were when you when you started. I mean, what do you think has has fueled that growth over the years of PureFit? Yeah, I think getting higher on the leveraged scale for distribution. I, th- I still think we spend the same amount of time, energy, and effort getting a client or getting a yeah. partner. But the difference is in the beginning, and and I, you know, we had to do it right. You couldn't start at the top. You just can't. But in the beginning, we would close a client and get you know ten lives or twenty lives or a hundred lives. Now, when we close a partner or a client, we're getting hundreds of thousands of lives all at once. And, you know, why we got bigger as a headcount perspective is doing a deal with a large health plan, even before it goes live, takes a year of prep work, right? Of doing integrations, passing uh, security and compliance audits, you know, building the infrastructure of what they specifically need. So, you know, you really have to invest for a whole year building infrastructure before any of those partnerships go live. Jeez, that is that's a lot. Obviously, I could see that with the bureaucracy of what that entails. I mean, partnerships are obviously everything for for that company. I mean, how do you approach which ones you want to partner with, like strategically? I'm curious about that because there's so many. I imagine different ones, or like you know how you could spend your time. Like, how do you approach partnerships and which ones you want to kind of form? You know, it is both an art and a science. And, you know, sometimes I I wish I could say, oh, this is how our, we, you know, look at our leads and what we go out and prospect and hunt. But at the end of the day is there's only so many health plans. We know exactly how big they are. We know which regions they're in. And most importantly is we know which ones we have connections to. And so because of that inside information, we know which ones are actually looking for something innovative. We know which ones are definitely not going to be looking to switch vendors and, and, you know, so to some degree, it's a bit of timing and some of it is we're just going to keep making ourselves present and known. We're going to keep sending them updates, even though they told us no, because one day when they have a break in faith with their current vendor and they just think to themselves for a second, man, why doesn't my vendor do that? Cause I keep hearing PeerFit does that. You're, you're right back in there. Right. So yeah. we, we've had that happen a number of times where Groups we thought we were going to get, we didn't. And then a year later or two years later, they came back to us and said, man, I kept tracking you and you kept sending me updates. So now I'm reaching out and hoping that we can do X, Y, and Z together. Yeah. And with that too, then, I mean, as, as you've grown these partnerships and you've grown peer fit over the years, in the last you know couple of years, at least, like you've raised like millions of dollars. Like, How has that, that process going, gone in terms of fundraising and any insights from there as well? Yeah, this is the one that I would truly argue is almost the same today as it was on day one. Investors <laughs> are very finicky. They're very emotional. And then they also can switch gears to be completely black and white. So the, the way that it's changed is as you get to investors that are larger and more sophisticated in our organizations, like we pitched you today, there is less an element of selling them on the story and more giving them the hard data of what you've done. But that data on its own isn't going to wow anybody, right? They still have to give them the story of where this is going to go. Otherwise, they're just investing in the present. And they want to invest in the future. But still right. at the same time, it, you know, you, whether it's a series A, B, C, D, it still takes you know 100 different meetings to get one yes. It still takes you know 25 different 
firms to talk to to find two or three that really like you that you can narrow down to one really good investor. Um, that was the same then. To me, it's still the same now. You know, it's like I said, you keep leaping pawns and are yeah. almost playing the same game just at different scales. That seems to be at least what I found, and you know, mine could be unique, but that seemed to be what I find is you know, when you grow at our scale every six months, every year, you're in a completely new ball game with new players and new, you're always starting back from the beginning. You don't, <laughs> you don't get to stay the big fish in the small pond very long. Cause as soon as you start to get kind of big, you're immediately in a larger pond starting from scratch. Yeah. It's like there's different investors, obviously at different stages. And so then it's like a whole new group of investors again, over oh, yeah. and over. And oh my goodness. Yeah. And with that too, and with the time spent like fundraising versus the business, like, I mean, how is your time today spent? Like, I mean, this is incredible times, obviously based on when we're recording this during quarantine, how is your time spent like nowadays? I was going to say, if you ask me how my time spent today, it's pretty much walking, running and trying to <laughs> not be in my living room, but yeah. No, yeah. So, um, <laughs> You know, what I would say is my goal is to always try to know what's going out on the market. And whether we're fundraising or not fundraising, that requires me to be out and about, be out in the field, talking to our frontline people. What are they seeing, hearing, and feeling? Talking to investors, once again, even ones that we're not interested in and they're not interested in us, they see so much of what's going on. So whether we're fundraising or not, I try to keep a pretty similar approach to my days, weeks, and months, which is being out in the field, collecting information and thinking on it. Uh, I really have tried to spend a lot more time thinking than in the past when it's just, you know, you're doing everything, you're wearing a thousand hats. But I think the business is best served the more information that I can disseminate and talk through with our board, with our management team, with, you know, key personnel, um, so that we can decide, you know, is our vision and direction still the right? Do we need to slow down or speed up? Do we need to slightly change directions? Is there a new partner out there that we should be partnering with? So I'm, I'm usually on the road. So I would say that's where, while our whole company is remote and always works from home, where, you know, quarantine has affected my schedule most is I'm actually at home, which is very, very rare for me. I'm almost never here. I try to, once again, stay as active as possible, being out and about, talking to people, listening, digesting information. Yeah. And through that too, I mean, is that where like the pure fit move idea came from or how did that come about? Oh, yes, yes. I, you know, I think about pure fit move. I go to New York a lot. We're, we're up in New York a lot. And I remember Todd, who's our chief growth chief growth officer, and I, we were we were in New York, and we kept discussing right every time we'd go up there about this idea. It kept coming to us. We were actually trying to go into the travel and hospitality space. We thought that our credits were there, and we knew it was going to be either hospitality or Medicare. And we kept hearing every plan ask us about going into Medicare, and it was our <laughs> soon to be chief strategy officer, I'm not sure he'd worked for us at the time, but he'd always been a longtime advisor, said, You're, we can't do both. We have to go into Medicare. I'm putting my foot down, which is funny because usually Todd and I are probably the bigger personalities and, and the ones who do all the talking. But Jason just put his foot down and said, we've got to go into Medicare. And, and yeah, that came about because the demand kept coming to us and we would have been fools not to go uh, into Medicare. And I'm so glad that we built PeerFit Move and it's been, it's been fantastic for us. 
Yeah, and with that, then I mean, going looking at that. So obviously, there's a huge need for that. But how are how are you looking at that? Are you, I mean, that situation. Like, take me through like your mindset on like what kind of either like, metrics that you were looking for, or like reasons to do it, or why you were considering other things. I'm just always kind of curious on the strategy side, like how you viewed that decision. Yeah. So Todd always likes to say that our only experience in Medicare before move was that we could spell Medicare, and that was about <laughs> it. So we didn't even know what we didn't know. We started having conversations with anyone we could get meetings with, health plans, state regulators, products, sales, account management, just what products have they been using? Why did they love them? Why did they hate them? What did they wish that they could do? You know, um, then we found a group of former health plan presidents who we hired. And once again, hiring great people, that that three musketeer group that we hired in the beginning, Louisa, Dave, and Katie were our brain trust. Todd, Jason, and I were just there to give them the institutional knowledge of what PeerFit can and can't do and what teams are available to do things. They knew everything about the marketplace, who's out there, who should we talk to. I mean, we went from zero lives to 100,000 lives on our first year, which took yes. us years to do on the under 65 side. So it was just, um, we ran faster than ever. And I know our poor dev and engineering and product team always thinks we're <laughs> pushing them to move fast, but building peer fit move was lightning speed, building a product from the ground up, getting it into some focus groups and launching. I mean, we were literally working on it at midnight the night that we were required to launch it because Jeez. all Medicare Advantage plans go live on January 1st every year. You don't, you don't get yeah. to move it back a day. <laughs> That's it sounds stressful, obviously. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I don't know why I make a joke about this, but I'm serious. Why in the heck do we make all of our insurance plans go live on January 1st, knowing the two weeks before nobody's working because of the holidays, right? It's so difficult <laughs> exactly, to get exactly. anything done. So if you're trying to work on anything related to an insurance plan going live on 1-1, what we have found is it is very difficult to get other vendors and suppliers to do work from December 15th to through January 1st. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. What a nightmare that sounds like to even to go through that. Um, one, one thing too, like looking back at this company, I mean, you mentioned how difficult it was to, you know, spent years of getting these partnerships in order. Is, is that why, I mean, how, where's competition come into play here? Are other companies trying to do this and it's just, you're ahead in terms of the relationships? Like how does that play a part in this whole thing? Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I've always wanted to draw a comic of a kid looking over another kid's shoulder during a test right back in school. I feel like there's been so many groups that are around us, maybe not direct competitors or maybe ones we've displaced, that I just don't know what they're doing in terms of innovation strategy. But our team seems to always find the right balance because soon after we launch things, we have other companies copying our exact language, copying our advertisements, copying our strategy, our pricing models. I mean, there's not been anything that we've done that hasn't been copied um, by different companies. And and so, uh, you know, I think that's a great testament to the innovation, the strategy, the collaboration that goes on in PeerFit. I mean, that's why we've won so many national awards for culture. We're an incredibly collaborative place. We never rest on our laurels and we're always just looking to do things better, right? No, no ego involved. It just, 
we want to do things better. And maybe the last product that we shipped or maybe the last campaign we did was good or great. doesn't matter. All we want to know is how can we make it better next? So um, are there you know direct competitors? Kind of. I mean, on the under 65 side, flexible fitness, um, everyone's trying to get different pieces of the pie. But on over 65, yeah. absolutely competitors. We went into an established market and we are the ones doing the disrupting. So that that's the one where we have direct head-to-head competition for sure. Yeah. And, and with that, I mean, obviously that, that's in the competition side of it. We've kind of touched a little bit on like the funding and growth, but like what I'm curious too, with that funding then, because you're not, it's not like you're, it's not like you're direct direct to consumer or your different route with that? Like, where does that funding typically go in terms of use of funds? Because, you know, some and many startups raise funding, it goes almost directly into like Facebook ads and Instagram ads, um, you know, for, for peer fit, then like, how is that kind of thought about when you're oh, raising funding? Like, where does that go towards? I think that's one of the hardest things for investors, whether they've invested in us or passed on us to digest is how selling into health plans is so different than consumer. Yeah. And and it's consumer is easy. It's a math equation by and large. Aha, it cost me $5 to acquire life. Let me just pump in $40,000 to Facebook ads. I thus <laughs> should get, you know, X number of new lives. Exactly. We're hunting whales that take years to get. And even after we get them, it takes another year for things to roll out. And remember that example I told you where, you know, typically if plans go live January 1, the entire previous year, we have to already be servicing that plan through audits, compliance meetings, the infrastructure's got to be built, integrations have to happen. So there's a lot of just building up front before the revenue ever comes on. And then even to some extent, after we get a contract, there's very little that we can move levers to drive more or less revenue out of some of these partnerships. So our revenue is pretty forecastable. We know for years and months ahead who we have when they go live, which to some extent is boring to investors. (laughs) So like I said, they don't like that. They can't just give us money or give us more money and it's going to significantly drive revenue. There's just, that's not responsibly the way that our company and our market works. I mean, we could go spend more money on advertisements, I guess, but it's not really going to make a health plan go any faster is really what it comes down to. Yeah, exactly. Which is definitely different from an investor's perspective. They're like, wait, (laughs) I can't just give you more money and you just grow this thing through that. Yeah, it's strange. (laughs) I mean, we have conversations with our board, with key investors to this day, um, over the debate of that. Like they just they just <laughs> don't comprehend that they can't just give us more money and it's going to translate immediately to more sales. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's tough. And and with Peerfit then like what is kind of that that next vision, next steps for the company? Well, um, you know, isolation and quarantine are going on right now and so yep. packaging all of our digital assets, both our streaming partners Forte and Burnalong, who've been great to work with, But then all of these studios and gyms that have closed their doors are now doing live streaming. So we're bundling all of that together with our at-home fit kits and we're launching PeerFit Digital and PeerFit Digital Plus so that our health plans and our employers can have a pure digital product to be pushing out to their employees. So clearly that's different in pricing, right? It's it's cheaper uh, to do that. So a lot of those people have been looking for low-cost options. I now have that. So I think the market has changed and it's taken something that 
we were very fortunate we already had as part of our business, but it was 5% of our business. And at least for the foreseeable future, it's going to be 100% of our business. But that's a heck of a lot better than somebody who's trying to create a new product from scratch right now. Oh, I mean, hands down, of course. That's, that's, yeah, tremendously different. And looking at that too, I mean, more in depth on the product, talking about like the product itself for people who haven't used it yet or aren't, aren't familiar, like, can you take us through like what that kind of looks like from the product itself? And granted, that's going to be changing and uh, evolving, obviously, but I'm curious about that too. Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, the way that we look at it is there is a supply, which are fitness experiences. There is demand, which are health employers and or employers and health plans, which are paying for it. And we help take those dollars, translate them into a usable way where they can be spent in all of these different fitness experiences. How it ends up for you, the user, is you go onto your app on your phone or you just go onto your computer, log into your PeerFit account, and you've got a number of credits that you can use every single month from your employer or health plan. Now in the past, what you were spending them on was, hey, book that 5 p.m. spot at boot camp, book that 9 a.m. CrossFit class for me or that you know bar method class. Now it is, hey, book that streaming spot for me or book my unlimited streaming membership to this or send me right. an at-home fit kit. So the experience is still the same. We're just, instead of showing you physical class times, we're showing you digital class times. And so it's pretty cool. (laughs) The experience doesn't have to change a lot. Like I said, we've been very, very fortunate. While a lot of people in our industry have lost 70, 80, 90% of their revenue, you know, ours has gone down 15% simply just because, you know, it's cheaper to provide that. So. Yeah. And like I said before, being adaptable with your business model in the first place and having that as an offering, I think a lot of different companies obviously are going to think about uh, the digital side of things even more if it's at all possible. Uh, And they're being forced to now. And clearly with this whole situation, who knows how long it'll be, it it is something where people, companies, they have to adjust. They have to find a way to make it work, uh, which is tricky, (laughs) very tricky to say the least. And and going back to a little bit of different uh, categories here, I'm curious, it's like, terms of this last you know decade of kind of growing this company and everything like what have been kind of any valuable like books uh, podcasts resources that you think have been really helpful for you I read a lot of books I use audible I read a new book probably every two weeks and by new it doesn't have to be an actual new one I, I like to reread old books yeah so um, I, I joined the app masterclass this last year i find that good to be supplemental i don't think on its own it's fantastic but i think it's a good supplemental follow-ups to to different books that i've read so i really uh loved never split the difference i thought it was Uh, a fantastic negotiation book and i i personally find reading books about other executives and hearing what they went through just kind of helps you think through your own problems. So I, Bob Iger's book was really good. I read a book yeah. about Bloomberg. I'm, re, I'm almost done with the, the book on Facebook right now. And just once again, just as I alluded to today, the problems we did early and then a few years later and even now, they're all very similar problems that you're just, you're just fixing them at different scale, right? And with different resources. And what it, it helps you do is see that other companies have very, very similar problems. They almost all go through similar things, but maybe they approach it slightly differently, or maybe they their order was the opposite order that you approached it. So I think it just helps you both have some calming effect that you're not the only one doing <laughs> it, not screwing it up. Um, and, and also that at the same time say, ah, I would have never thought to approach a problem like that how could I look at my own workforce or my own personal development slightly differently? So I really enjoyed books uh, about and from other executives. 
Yeah, and there's so many too. Looking back at like autobiographies and stuff from from even years and years ago of um, yeah, so many different ones. I mean, there's there's like a Rockefeller book. There's so many different ones. You get insights on how they thought and how they operated. And like you said, it kind of just fuels how you make decisions or how you want to run your own company and you use that as context clearly but then uh you have that as well which is i found really helpful as well oh my god the rockefeller book i've got it on my um list for audible for next month and you know most of the books on audible are you know 20 hours or so to read the rockefeller book's like 50 hours so i'm, I'm, I'm waiting yeah for, uh, that'll be that'll be a long one but yeah I, look i love it i i think like i said i i really have enjoyed just hearing other people's you know, what, what they go through and how their thought process was. Now, if you want just a business drama book that is absolutely um, a dumpster fire and you, it's, it's like reality <laughs> TV in a book, it's the book that they released this last year about Uber. I don't know if you're oh. super pumped for those of I you. I haven't read it. It is, tr it, is, it is basically a dumpster fire to go behind the scenes of what that company was like as it grew. Because if you remember, I mean, it was the fastest growing tech company basically ever in terms of their yeah. scale and magnitude. And just to see what they ignored and purposefully ignored at the cost of growth and how they approach it. I mean, it's like the show Summer House, but it's Startup Edition is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting about that too. Like we, I, everyone's kind of aware of, you know, the issues has been the media and everything of, of, of Uber, obviously, over the years. Uh, one, of the, so I'm at USC right now with the, getting the MBA, and we actually had Travis Kalanick come into one of my classes, uh, <laughs> which was kind of surreal uh, to be like, I know some of the things behind the scenes of this company and uh, about him as well. And to hear him kind of go through and talk, obviously, they don't, you know, doesn't talk about a lot of the, the, the negative things, clearly. Um, but it's interesting. Council, I'm sure. Yeah, of course, where he just, yeah, I can't talk about that stuff. But to even, you know, to think of the growth and the, the, uh, some of the, the horrible things as well, it's just kind of insane. When we had him in class, everyone was kind of like awestruck, but also being like, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about that, things. right? The end of the book ends and talks about how he leaves Uber, right? He's being forced yeah. to leave Uber and he decides yep. to start a new startup. And at the time, you know, everyone's like, oh, I don't know about this. And I think about, I was thinking about it the other day about how genius his his new startup is here, in, especially in quarantine world, where oh, yeah. you know, Uber Eats changed how we have food delivered. I mean, McDonald's decided to finally work with him. And he said, well, what if we could build these, you know, kitchens where companies didn't have to have the whole restaurant and it could be the pickup spot. So an Uber Eats shows up to building A and there's six different restaurants that are preparing to go food right in there so the yep. so the uber eats doesn't have to go all over the place and i thought oh that's interesting and then when quarantine hit i go my god that's <laughs> gonna be so useful i mean you can say what you want to about his personality the guy's certainly smart and understands yeah. uh you know market opportunities that's for sure yeah yeah, and that's the whole Cloud Kitchens, I think, is their company, I want to yep. say. I don't know if it's the yep. idea. But the, actually, the reason why he came in class is because uh, the co-founder of that company is our was our professor. So it was like an adjunct professor oh. who has this one class. And so he knows all these different people, uh, Travis County being one of them. And like, yeah, there's obviously a lot of negatives too. But you try to take out – like, take it. you try to take in those things of, okay – what can I actually get out of this and not be too judgmental and understand like, yeah, there's some, a ton of negatives, but uh, clearly it was able to build something there, which at, from Uber and then also now with cloud kitchens. Um, but yeah, there's so it's a case study that you can talk for, for hours about obviously with, with that type yes. of thing. I couldn't, um, put, I couldn't put the book down. I literally read it in a handful of days. I mean, I have three audible or credits. Four days. 
So, so I need to get it. it then. Super pumped. <laughs> yeah. uh, good, good to know. And then with uh, with work too, I'm always curious as to kind of how someone works. What is a day in the life? Now, obviously, this is going to be different, perhaps, because you're not traveling or anything. Uh, but throughout your day, I mean, like, what does a day look like for you at work? Sure. Normally, um, there's a lot of airplane time, and I actually look forward to airplane time where I can read my book or just get to work kind of in silence. So I, yeah. I enjoy that time. I, I'd say generally I'm in two or three cities a week is how I try to spend my weeks. When I'm out into a city, I'll just use New York again as an example. I try to stuff all different types of meetings, catching up with investors. Once again, ones that we might not have any interest in, but just what are they hearing? What are they seeing? And what is their objective insight on our company? I love using them as a mirror of what are they seeing with our own company? You know, where are warts that we're not aware of? So I always get great advice. I, I, I schedule some of those meetings while I'm in there. Um, next, we meet with our health plan partners. You know, how can we best help them? What are they seeing? Maybe we meet with some clients while we're there. Maybe I'll attend a pitch from one of our salespeople so that, you know, I can hear them. They can hear me. And like I said, I like to be out in the field, uh, almost always set up workouts for our team to go work out together. And then, you know, go do dinner together afterwards. So the days we try to jam them uh, pretty from sunup to sundown during those trips, you know, I'd say that they, it's usually about a 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. day, which after I read the my sleep book, I was thinking, my God, I'm hindering myself so much from all the lack <laughs> yeah. of sleep. But, you know, they're pretty, pretty exhaustive days in, in terms of their rigor. Um, uh, weeks that I'm home, it's almost more frenetic pace because everything that needs to be done while I happen to physically be in Tampa is loaded up. So think of all the the not fun admin stuff of finance briefings and filing paperwork and meetings at banks or meetings uh, with our existing board, you know, things like that. Um, that right. typically happens when I'm at home in Tampa. So uh, overall, it's a busy, busy time. Like I said, I try to stay as active as possible and, you know, take walks or have a running break halfway through the day just to, to break up the day a little bit. Yeah. And diving into that uh, aspect of things as well. I mean, what do you do to recharge? What's your kind of like your health wellness routine as well? I try to recharge like throughout the day, throughout different activities. First of all, I like being on pitches and external facing things. So those energize me. Things that don't energize me when I'm not, you know, out pitching and, and not in meetings or once again, doing more admin type work, which I just, that's very, very draining. So you know, it's not like I ever get to an erupting point where, man, I've got to take a day off or I need to go on a walk for two hours and not talk to anybody. Minus think of it as almost like a constant low level energizing throughout the day. So wake up, make sure I yeah. go in the morning on a, on a walk and listen to a little bit of my audible. That really helps me out. Um, you know, if I start hit that point in the day, instead of doing the caller video, I'll just go on a walk and do it, you know, over pods. So I just try to, you know, I work out, uh, try to do a HIIT workout about three to five times a week. Uh, I run two to three times a week. I go on multiple walks every single day. And then other than that, I, you know, I said where the quarantine has been the hardest is I'm very social. I like to go out every day. I'd like to have dinners with people, have happy hours with people, you know, go to group fitness classes with people. And just, you know, not having that is certainly um, having to find other ways to manipulate getting social energy. Yeah. 
that's awesome. And so many different ways to go about that kind of recharging process. And I like the idea of kind of throughout the day as well, because I mean, if, if you're just sitting around like the whole day not doing anything, it's just so tough to operate. I think as human beings, we're just not meant to operate that way. Um, and kind of taking those breaks in between seem to seem to help a lot. And I'm definitely all about the going for a walk or something, or just even like knocking out some, some pushups or bodyweight stuff I do just to kind of break up the day. Uh, I think that's really helpful. And at, at looking back to, you know, this, your career so far of building PureFit over the years. I'm curious, it's like, you know, maybe one or two lessons you want to impart on the, the entrepreneurs listening, the aspiring entrepreneurs listening, um, and to buy you a little bit of time uh, with that as you're kind of thinking about that. Uh, it can be anything, anything at all that you've kind of learned just through throughout your career that you'd want to kind of leave people with, uh, because obviously you spent this time building this company and it's a lot more to go, but um, any lessons you have for people? Yeah, I'd say no one person seems to have the right answer. And your job is to take a lot of people's good suggestions and distill it down to the best answer that you can for your company. Uh, you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. So really what you want your job is to be curator of great ideas and decision maker. But you know, when, when you're the one who has to come up with the best ideas, right, that can only happen for so long or the company is only going to go as far as, as you know, you can intellectually make it happen. So what I always tell everybody is uh, there is no one right answer, but there are certainly wrong answers. Yeah, exactly. And Ed, where can people go to learn more about what you're doing and uh, connect with you if they want to? Yeah. Um, well, PeerFit, which is P-E-E-R-F-I-T, we're on every medium out there, except for TikTok. We're not going to be on TikTok, <laughs> but Facebook, Instagram, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, PeerFit's there. I, myself, Ed Buckley, I try to stay very active on LinkedIn and Facebook particularly. So, you know, you can always know what's going on. Uh, I, like I said, I'm very, very transparent and probably am posting once or twice a day, every single day on what we're working on, new things that we're seeing and, and just trying to share our insights with the industry. That's awesome. And I think obviously you're doing a, a great job with that and doing something that's very useful for the world in general, and especially what people need now, just still staying healthy and still staying fit and being able to adjust that digital, the digital world is, is awesome. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. JustGoGrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.